so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. That's really only my ears talk, I care about. Just talk into <clears throat> it. I am ta- I'm talking into You're it. You're not really. Yes, Look I at am. my mic like this. Yes, it hits right here with me. Thank okay. you. Just don't go, ha, ha, ha. Santa Claus was last month. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week on a week of technical difficulties on the front end is Brent Leatherwood. Yes, but thanks to our awesome audio engineer here, we've been able to cross those hurdles. Yes, let's give him a plug. Yes. Mark Owens of Owens Productions. Yes. With Did, an S on the end, yes, Owens. Yes, an S on the end, yes. Did you recognize that I used hurdles there? It's very Olympic in its theme. Uh, well, no, Although I, think I did it's not. It's the wrong, wrong Olympics. <laughs> they don't have people hurdles. Do hurdles. They don't do hurdles that. in the Winter Olympics. That's do right. They? So good job, friend. <laughs> Although, actually, if they incorporated hurdles into like skiing, ice uh, racing, that <laughs> would be what do they call it? Epic. <laughs> uh, I don't you know. know. The, the speed race, skating. Speed skating. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that's. If they incorporated hurdles, I think they'd have to be in full body gear because they would be injured. <laughs> I mean, but but be honest, you would watch that. I mean, I watch speed skating anyway. That's true. Sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, well, let's move on here uh, before we start to go down a rabbit trail that nobody is interested in. And let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we're going to start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First up is a piece by Jason Thacker titled, What Does the Image of God Have to Do with the Pro-Life Movement? The Centrality of Human Dignity to Christian Ethics. Basically, that is a lot of words to say because everyone we know from God's word is made, created in God's image, we have an obligation to advocate for their dignity and to uphold that for every single person. And that's why uh, this is not just an individual thing. This is a whole society thing. And that's why one of the areas we're so passionate about applying this is in the pro-life arena. So the March for Life is happening this week, which is tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday. It's happening when this releases on Friday. And that is where believers will gather from all over to march on behalf of the dignity and the inherent worth and the value and the right to life of those preborn babies who are in the womb. And this started after the infamous and horrible decision of Roe v. Wade, um, where abortion was made the law of the land. So Jason just writes this article so that we can understand the foundation of why we advocate so strongly for these, especially these preborn lives. Yep. And I, I love the way you, you titled this, Lindsay, uh, because you, you said, what does the image of God have to do with the pro-life movement? 
the centrality of human dignity to Christian ethics. And, and that is so true. Like if I really feel like if we get our understanding of the Imago Dei and the implications it has for us uh, as we go through this world, like it helps us get so many things right. And, you know, conversely, if, if you don't fully understand the Imago Dei and its implications, you, you end up getting things incorrect. You, you don't see things the way that God sees them. And so that's why it is truly central to our understanding of, of Christian ethics and how we apply those ethics to the world at large. And so this is a, a great piece uh, for this week because, as you said, March for Life will be occurring. That's right, and we we pray that the Lord continues to use that march to elevate the voices of those who don't yet have a voice inside the womb. Next up is a piece by Daryl Crouch, and it's very much in the vein of human dignity, and it's titled, Three Ways to Elevate the Dignity of Senior Adults in Our Churches. Now, we know in our society that people's perceived worth is based on usefulness. And I say perceived worth because we know from what we just discussed about the Imago Dei being made in the image of God that we have an inherent worth that is always there, whether somebody recognizes it or not. But older adults have not been esteemed that the way that they should in our society because as we get older, uh, our abilities decline oftentimes. But the Bible tells us that gray hair is a crown of wisdom and older people are esteemed throughout the Bible and respected. And as believers, we should lead the way in valuing, in embracing, in uh, cherishing these older adults around us and in our churches. And so Daryl, who was a pastor for many years, now leads a nonprofit ministry, just gives us some practical ways that we can uphold the dignity of these precious saints in our churches. Well, and there's just, there truly is so much wisdom that can be tapped into when you simply inquire to older members of your congregations. And, and isn't it just so strange how we have like completely done a, a 180 on this and everything is about youth and, and vibrancy and, and those things are, are fine. But as we have elevated those things, we have basically put on the back burner things like wisdom and understanding. And um, that's just so, I mean, just as a culture, we, we, we lose so much when we do that. And, you know, I'm often reminded because in this, right, there should be a a huge element of humility, which again, our culture has also seemingly tossed out the window. And But like we need to constantly remind ourselves, uh, those of us who are on the younger end of the spectrum, like we are not the ones that we've been waiting for as it relates to any question that our, our culture is, is wrestling with. And instead, we should look to learn from those who have uh, gone before us and, and understand why they've made decisions the way that they have why they found themselves in various situations uh, so that hopefully we can learn from them. Right. Well, and that reminded me when you were talking about that, our culture's obsession with youth, of this meme that I saw. Uh, I think it's called a meme. I can't keep those words straight. But so it had side-by-side -side characters from two TV shows. The first is Golden Girls, which, fast fact, Brent Leatherwood is a Golden Girls fan, which 
Huge. I'm a Golden Girls fan too, but it's just weirder that you're a Golden Girls fan, <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad that you are. Because, and, well, speaking of age, I grew up watching it with my mama and papa. Yeah. I mean, the jokes awesome. flew yeah. all over my head, but I knew yeah. it, was, it was a bunch of old ladies who lived right. in Florida. But get this. So it, those characters were set next to the characters of the new Sex and the City reboot. So I am not promoting Sex and the City. I have not seen it. Don't plan to watch it. But this is just what the meme was. And it's important because it had the three characters. It's important because the characters in the actual ages of the actresses in Golden Girls were younger than the actual ages of the actresses in Sex and the City reboot. And if you look at them side by side, it is nutso. What? Yes. That can't be true. No, it's true. 53 to 54 were the ages of those actresses. Sophia, who is the grandma, she's not really as old she as they the made youngest, her look. Yeah, she was actually the, one of the youngest. The actresses in the Sex and City reboot are 54 to 55. So it's not a big <laughs> difference, but still, if you look still, at them side by wow. side, the Golden Girls actresses had the typical, what you would think of grandma hairdo, the curly short hair, which is exactly what my grandma had. And then Sarah Jessica Parker, of course, you know, still... Trying to still look, trying I mean, to look great, like she's in her twenties. Still 20s. trying to look like she's in her twenties. So. Yeah. Well, I, I might link to that. It is crazy. So anyway, that just proves our culture has an obsession with youth. And listen, senior adults are not perfect, but like you said, they do have wisdom, and we are called to to value them. And then finally, Alex Ward has an article titled "When Genetic Testing Goes Wrong." Reporting from the New York Times reveals some prenatal test results have high level of inaccuracy. So Alex points out in this that these genetic tests are morally neutral. And these are the tests that you get. You can get it early on, blood tests, to find out the sex of your child early on. They screen for things like Down syndrome and other things. We opted not to do it. And this article really is why—well, we didn't know about the article, but is why I was uncomfortable with it. Because there was a, as much of a, I think, 85% level of inaccuracy for the results of some of these tests. It was not, Down syndrome was not one of them, but some other genetic tests that usually are not compatible. Uh, if you have these these syndromes or diseases, they're usually not compatible with life. And the bad part about this is that people are choosing to abort based on these test results. And these test results are usually inaccurate. Now, it's terrible that people are choosing to abort. We, we are not for that. That's awful. But we live in a society that is a, an abortion culture. So if people think about a life with a child with some type of special need or disabilities, unfortunately and tragically, they oftentimes choose to abort. But they're aborting based on things that may not even happen. And so it's it's just important for Christians to be aware of this and Christians to think about how we are uh, maybe supporting this larger culture if we choose to participate in these tests, which oftentimes the bottom line is money for mm -hmm. these companies. Mm -hmm. So this story reminds me of our own experience when we had our first child. Uh, Meredith's doctor came to us and said, hey, you're at the stage now where you can take advantage of these prenatal testing. And I'm just letting you know that because that, that's a you know biological fact. He's like, but I know the two of you and I would recommend you actually just don't do this. Um, he's like, because I can tell y'all are, pretty strong Christians, and you kind of lean in to God in a whole lot of ways that that I can see. And he's like, I just don't think that these tests will really be all that helpful for you all. Let's just wait uh, a few more weeks, and you'll know whether you're having a boy or a girl. And that that seems to me what, <laughs> what y'all want to know. And he's like, I just don't think you need to do any of this. And he's like, I've just seen too many instances 
where uh, mothers and fathers, they, they want to go down this route of testing. And it often comes back with information that I'm somewhat skeptical of, but then they choose a path that I just don't think any of that you all would would want to go down and and I just you know speaking of wisdom this doctor was you know close to retiring when we were utilizing him and and working with him and I, I was just so thankful for uh, that I was thankful for obviously he he recognized that about us but I was really just thankful for that wisdom uh, that he had because I mean he did tell us later when we were talking about this very thing he's like yeah you know a lot of younger doctors, they actually kind of press these tests on their patients. And he's like, I just, I just seen enough to know they're not foolproof. And I just don't, I don't think that it's uh it's good medical practice uh, to utilize them. And so, you know, and, and what, and Alex teases out uh, a lot of that in this story. And so I'm, I'm thankful that he did that. And I'm honestly, I'm thankful that the New York times is reporting on this in this abortion uh, minded culture that we're in. I think a lot of people that are on that side of the spectrum, like New York Times, why are you why are you talking about this? So what if if somebody uh, aborts a child? You know th- this kind of disposable uh, moment that we're in, where, where everything, including preborn lives, are, are just seen as something to be discarded if it's not exactly what someone wants or when someone exactly wants it. And so I actually I, I applaud the New York Times for running the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, good for the New York Times for doing this reporting and for uh, reporting this story because we know New York Times is liberal, pretty liberal in that sense, and we would uh, assume favorable toward abortion. And so we are thankful for this article. We're we're thankful for this report on the article that Alex wrote, and we're thankful as an organization and as believers to be able to participate in the advocacy for the recognition of the human dignity of all people. And uh, we will continue to do that uh, as long as the Lord allows us to as an organization. So that's just a brief look at what pieces we have up this week. As always, be sure to check our site. And for now, Brent, that is your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what kind of rundown do you have for us? That's right. Well, we will start with the one-year anniversary of President Joe Biden taking office. It's been one year. It in some ways, it feels actually like it's been a lot longer. Uh, I, we've talked before about how COVID has kind of messed with our our sense of time, and that's certainly the case here. So traditionally, presidents do these kind of either year-end or new year or, you know, uh, one year in office press conferences. So that's what this was. And uh, in the midst of President Biden's press conference, he got a little feisty. Uh, So this comes to us from the Washington Post. President Biden escalated his partisan rhetoric Wednesday during his first news conference in 10 months, laying the blame for his stalled agenda at the feet of Republicans and suggesting on the eve of his one-year anniversary that he has been surprised by their intransigence. Quote, I, honest to God, don't know what they're for, Biden said at one point during his nearly two-hour exchange with reporters. What is their agenda? He said the GOP is thoroughly cowed by former President Donald Trump, continuing with his quote, Did you ever think that one man out of office could intimidate an entire party where they're unwilling to take any vote? Biden asked. Uh, He went on to talk about Russia. Biden also offered unvarnished thoughts about Russia's intentions towards Ukraine, suggesting that President Vladimir Putin would probably invade the country. He suggested the U.S. response would be different if Moscow launches, quote, a minor incursion 
versus a massive ground invasion, causing a furor that quickly prompted the White House to clarify that he was distinguishing a military and non-military assault. The president also made news by confirming rumors that he plans to break up his roughly $2 trillion social welfare and climate legislation called the Build Back Better Package into smaller bills. So this press conference, it was a wide-ranging press conference. As a matter of fact, I, I think I saw someone say that it was the longest ever presidential press conference, which is 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 pretty amazing in and of itself. And uh, President Biden talked about a whole bunch of uh, different issues, but the, the one that was actually the most concerning for me was this part that the, the Post is reporting on, these thoughts about uh, Russia, where seemingly he, he let his guard down somewhat and talked about the fact that he did think that Russia is likely to invade Ukraine. And, and then he went down this trail of talking about uh, almost in terms of a small incursion being somehow acceptable. That was, I mean, to imagine that a, an American president would say that about Russia violating another country's sovereign borders is, I don't know, it's pretty different. Now, again, the, the White House came back and said, oh, he was talking about a non-military assault. But I don't know, we're, we're living in a very tense moment uh, with what is happening on the Ukrainian border. And uh, for him to kind of weigh in nonchalantly like that was uh, pretty eye-opening. So you're just to clarify, you're saying he was nonchalant about a minor attack? Yeah, he seemed to be fairly indifferent about uh, what he called a minor incursion. Now, again, the White House came back afterwards and said that he was talking about a, a non-military assault, such as like a, a cyber attack. Uh, which he did cover that. But it, in the moment, it did seem like he was talking about like military maneuvers because he that was also around the moment where he said, if, if that did occur, America would step up our troop presence with NATO partnering countries such as Poland. Uh, so it, it's clear he had military on his mind, but I, I don't know. It was, uh, it was certainly an interesting press conference to listen to, uh, no doubt. Well, I am no political expert, so I'm going to have to take your word on some of these things. But what I will remember from President Biden's first year, and it feels like he's already been in office for a really long time because 2022 already feels like it's been a whole year, even though we're not even in February yet, <laughs> um, is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right. And, uh, just the horror of that and the the absolute debacle that it was and the shame. So, yeah, I, and I can't believe that's only been within the first year. It feels like it was like 10 years ago. That's right. Well, and and that came up at, at several points uh, during the press conference as well. And he pushed back uh, pretty hard on that. But the fact is, I mean, we can just see that that was a, a disastrous move. And in some ways, uh, the fallout from that move uh, relates to the next story. And this one I'm going to quote from pretty extensively because it, it comes to us from Axios. And it's talking about our trust deficit, not just in America, but globally, has hit new lows. And essentially, individuals, citizens uh, around the world in various countries, they are seeing instances like the Afghanistan pullout that are being done so quickly and without a lot of clear explanation, it is causing real harm. And that is one of the causes of this trust deficit, but it's not the only one. So uh, from Axios, trust in government is collapsing, especially in democracies, according to a new global survey. 
People also don't think media or business leaders are telling them the truth, and this suspicion of multiple societal institutions is pushing people into smaller and more insular circles of trust. Government leaders and journalists are considered the least trustworthy societal leaders, according to Edelman's a research firm, New 2022 Global Trust Barometer, a survey of 35,000 respondents across 28 different countries. A majority of people believe journalists, government leaders, and business executives are, quote, purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. And to be clear, it says a majority. These are well into the 60% range. So, I mean, this is a clear majorities. Around the world, people fear the media is becoming more sensational for commercial gain and that government leaders continue to exploit divisions for political gain. People who live in democracies are quickly losing trust in those democracies while trust in authoritarian regimes in China, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, for example, is increasing among the people who live under them. As trust in democratic institutions wanes, there's also growing doubts about capitalism. Developed democracies specifically lack economic optimism per the survey. It also had this other finding, a trust gap has increased between wealthy and low-income populations. So I quoted from that extensively because this is a phenomenon that we're, that we're seeing. It is materializing in all sorts of different areas. I think we all feel it, and it is definitely concerning because, you know, the thing that keeps democracies specifically going is that there is trust either in your local communities in you know for our system our state uh, leaders and then our federal leaders so we there's a lot of trust that goes into a citizen expressing their views through voting and then the individuals that are voted in to represent them carry out those views consistent with, obviously, the the norms and constitutional structures of respective countries. And when that starts to break down, bad things happen. You know, one of the things you said is that people also don't think media or business leaders are telling them the truth. The suspicion is pushing people into smaller, more insular circles of trust. And this, to me, is a breeding ground of misinformation, conspiracy theories, fake news— whatever else it might be. And it just, yeah, it's not good, like you said. And what is surprising to me, what you pointed out at the end, is that trust in authoritarian regimes is increasing among the people who live in them. And I'm curious as to why, if it's just a lack of information because there's filtering on internet and stuff, or if they're just not encouraged to think, you know, uh, I don't know, but it's very interesting. Well, I would say just, you know, trust is what makes democracies go. In autocratic regimes, that's not the case. It's more about top-down power uh, and control. And uh, when you limit the information that the people that you are ruling over, when you limit that, uh, there's not as much free exchange of ideas and inquiry into what else is, is going on or not going on. But in democracies, which are you know just by definition more transparent, that is where you know some of this stuff can happen. And, and so as people get into these more and more insular circles of of trust, uh, as it talks about here, they can be preyed upon by uh, harmful actors. And think about it, this plays out in our own lives in, in different ways. Uh, how many individuals do you know are more willing to trust some sort of anonymous person that they see on social media with information than they are a neighbor who's right next to them? We know of 
all kinds of pastors uh, who are dealing with uh, individuals in their church coming to them with information, and when they try and uh, explain something to them, that person says, well, I, I just actually don't trust you. I don't, I don't think you know what you're talking about, pastor. And they go away uh, upset, even though they're the ones that came to the pastor. Uh, and so, you know, that happens quite a bit in this, this time that we're living in. But it is, it is why I think that one of the avenues out of this is for churches to really concentrate and double down on providing real community uh, for the members of their congregations. Uh, church has got to be a place where we can all go uh, with our different opinions, our perspectives, our viewpoints, our, our different kinds of brokenness, and come together and say, we're coming together to worship Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we're coming together and and just sussing out things with one another, reasoning with one another, and, and building trust at, at least in that community. And if, if then, if we are Christians with a Great Commission mindset, we can go back into our homes and other local communities and, and start to rebuild that trust that, that has been lost over the years. All right, moving next back to Capitol Hill, Senate Democrats fail in their attempt to change the filibuster rules. And this comes to us from CBS News. I'll, I'll, let me stop there. Lindsay, do you know what the filibuster is? <laughs> no, you can't Google it. I'm not going to. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a way to negotiate. It's a way to negotiate a, a piece of legislation that you're Trying to get past. There you go. Some is that yeah, you're you're getting there. You're getting there. It's a it's a, a procedural tactic that's unique to the Senate, uh, and uh, it requires you to get sixty votes in order to move forward with consideration of a particular As legislation. To how many votes? A simple majority. So it would be you know fifty one. Fifty one. Yes. So this comes to us from CBS News. Democrats failed to get fifty votes to change the Senate rules to move forward with the legislation. With a simple majority, the legislation in question is uh, legislation that Democrats are proposing that would, in many ways, federalize elections. In our system, the various states have control of uh, the elections that, that occur within those state borders. This legislation is essentially trying to place some national standards on voting around the country. The dramatic night started with the Senate first voting on whether to end debate on the voting rights legislation, a move that failed to get the 60 votes needed to move the bill forward. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer then brought up a vote on a rules change to move the legislation forward with a one-time exemption, which was fiercely opposed by Republicans and two members of his own party, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Democrats' frustration with Manchin and Cinema was apparent with Senator Bernie Sanders saying after the vote that Manchin and Cinema have forced us to go through five months of discussions which have gotten absolutely nowhere. The Senate rules change proposed by Democrats would have implemented a, quote, talking filibuster for the voting rights legislation alone. Under this plan, final passage would require a 51-vote majority rather than the usual 60 after senators use their opportunities to speak to the filibuster the bill. Why is this important? It is important because in our constitutional structure, the Senate was developed to essentially be the arm of our legislative branch that cooled the passions 
that would come over from the house. The house is in, was envisioned by our, our founders to be the, the representative body that was very quick acting, uh, driven by passion, driven by, by whims in order to come up with legislative solutions. The Senate was designed to essentially be a break on that. The filibuster came about as a parliamentary tactic, a procedural rule that is in line with that thinking. Now, there are, there are lots of good scholars out there that will point out the filibuster is not in the Constitution. So it is not a constitutional requirement. It's an internal Senate rule. So yes, it can be changed. The question is, should it be changed? Uh, because as, as Senator Manchin points out in this piece when, with his quote, uh, the filibuster, when, when it is working properly, when the Senate is working properly, the filibuster forces the Senate to compromise on, on these sorts of big ideas. And we need more uh, legislation that is passing in this country that achieves consensus. But essentially, if you do away with it and it, all it takes is a simple majority, the Senate essentially just becomes the House. And that I don't think people have true on either side of the political aisle. I, I don't think people have really reckoned with what that will mean for their respective agendas and the future of this country. Well, thank you for that lesson, Brent, as one who still associates filibuster with the woman in the bright tennis shoes uh, who talked for a long time. Uh, I'm appreciative in of Texas, the lesson. Right. Yes, I'm appreciative <laughs> of the lesson, and uh, we'll take your word for it because I trust you. You see what I did there? There you go. You're, you're restoring trust right here, right now. Okay, and so for our final story, this comes to us from NBC News. And Lindsay, I, I thought you would uh, be able to give us a, a, a unique take on this. Imagine getting stuck on a blind date for multiple days during a COVID lockdown. This is hilarious. <laughs> that, that happened in China. For one Chinese woman, that became a reality last Friday when she said she had to stay in her date's apartment after authorities opposed a COVID-19 lockdown in that particular area of the city that she was in. Officials were responding to an outbreak of the Delta variant in the capital of the Henan province, where scores of cases were recorded last week. Three days later, the woman shared videos of her lockdown routine on Weibo, China's Twitter-like social media platform, and Douyin, which is TikTok in China. Her story quickly went viral. Her family, so the reason she got into this is because her family had set up a series of blind dates. And this, her partner here was the fifth of those 10 blind dates. And she said, I am getting older. My family introduced me to more than 10 blind dates. She agreed to meet at the blind date's house last Friday so that he could show off his cooking, she told the newspaper in Shanghai. While her host had been gracious, she said he barely spoke, but everything else was great, adding that he cooks and cleans up and works. Uh, she has since removed some of these viral videos because uh, she was concerned that uh, her date was was getting too much unwanted attention. Uh, but this really happened. And so, uh, Lindsay, I, I'm interested on your thoughts and analysis uh, of this situation. Well, first of all, her bar is pretty low. He cooks, cleans up, and works. <laughs> That's pretty sad, sad telling of our age. But, ooh, I went on some blind dates in my singleness that I would have died if I got stuck on for several days. So 
Yeah, I really feel for her. That, oh, goodness. But he cooked, so maybe that was okay. But, ooh, yeah, I feel for her. It would have been a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, this is like nightmare material. I oh, mean, it's like a Dateline episode. I because, love Dateline. Because she says, you know, these things are, he, you know, he, he did these great things, cooks, cleans up works. What if he didn't do any of those things? Right. <laughs> and just talked instead. Because apparently he didn't talk. He barely spoke. <laughs> he was probably so shocked, so flabbergasted to have this girl stuck in his house. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously Ooh. there needs to be a follow-up conversation to get his perspective. Uh, because I, I would love to see what he had to say Absolutely. about her. Oh, and, I, and I do want to know, like, we need one of those, like, on um, House Hunters kind of update. Like, six months later, did, did these two— have another date? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I these are the questions I need answers to. Did one of her blind dates work out? I want to know how she got 10 blind dates. I think the population of males in China is more than females, yes. right? Because of the right. one-child policy and preferring uh, males, which is unfortunate. Because here in the United States, when you're an older single, I'm telling you, there are not 10 blind dates to be set up <laughs> on. So, <laughs> Well, uh, Lindsay, that is your look at culture around the globe this week. Well, thanks for that, Brent. That was enlightening. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, you're up first. Well, you mentioned it earlier in the show. This week is the annual March for Life, and uh, I love highlighting this because this is an annual gathering of Christians from around the country and and honestly around the globe to come to Washington, D.C. and march. Now, there are some hurdles. There's been some hurdles the last couple of years because of the coronavirus. Uh, so a lot of auxiliary events, even our own event that we were planning to host, we, we've had to postpone it because of just all the various restrictions and and whatnot. Uh, But we will have uh, members of our team that are participating in the March for Life. And it's a good symbolic event. It is essentially, it is a, it's a march for justice saying that there, there needs to be uh, just laws in this nation that actually protect the lives of preborn children because they are valuable and they are made in the image of God. And so therefore they're, they're worth protecting and so this is I, – I love this event each year, and I, I hate that I personally am, am not going to to be there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to experience and be a part of. I had never been a part of something like that before, and it's powerful. It brings out all kinds of people. There's some more interesting than others. Um, and so all kinds of people in the march and then all kinds of people opposed to the march. But it is – it's pretty powerful to see that many people gathering together, especially so many young people. Teens is amazing. You talking about this throws me back. I don't think you are with us yet on the team. When we, as an organization, when we were there for March for Life and when we did Evangelicals for Life, we got snowed in because there was a big snowstorm in D.C. We got stuck in our hotel for several days we had to play, I mean, we played games. We tried to have team building type stuff turn into a staff <laughs> retreat. We did, we had our own little church gathering. We we had a name for it. And we, Dan Darling, uh, when he was here, he led the music. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was, we had some special music as well. It was pretty crazy. Uh, 
Man, I'm sorry you missed it because it would have been fun with Brent Leatherwood added in there. Well, things are usually uh, more fun with 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 me involved for sure. More fun or more annoying? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Parse your words. Only oh, you get to say that. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for highlighting the March for Life. I want to highlight an article by Christy Thornton, and she is at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And there has been some talk in the Twitter world about pronouns recently, you know, in the midst of the sexual revolution and transgender revolution. It's not acceptable in our society to use, unashamedly use the pronouns he or she and uh, mean he as a biological male and she as a biological female. Instead, the sexual revolutionaries prefer they, which has been a plural word. So, you know, God refers to himself in his word as he, though God is not gendered, what are we to do with those pronouns? And so Christy writes an article titled, They is not a pronoun for God. And then the subtitle is, God doesn't have a gender, but his pronouns do. So it's helpful discussion for us as we live and wade through this culture that we find ourselves in where this conversation will just continue about pronouns and gender, will continue to happen. And so Somebody's obviously going to ask us this question or try to prove us wrong. So it's good to be equipped in that way. And I'm thankful that Christianity Today published an article by Christy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a helpful resource. And look, there's a number of questions uh, floating around families, churches, communities in general, and uh, because we live in such uh, confusing times. And a number of those questions revolve around individuals sexual orientation or or gender identity, and uh, we have a biblical framework to be able to answer those questions, Uh, but uh, sometimes those questions even get applied to God himself, and uh, we know that God is unchanging, and uh, we need to, as we answer those questions, we need to really help people understand that fact uh, about our God. Yeah, and here's the blessing of living in the digital age is that we have access to all of these amazing resources. We have access to misinformation, but we also have access to right, helpful information, especially when it comes to understanding the Bible and understanding the God of the Bible. And so this is one way that we can take advantage of that access by reading this article. Absolutely. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is edited and mixed by Mark Owens of Owens Productions. It's produced by Brent Leatherwood and Lindsay Nicolay. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.